is the Amplify podcast, the voice of the third space, which is being recorded under quarantine conditions by Google Hangout in Central Oklahoma. I'm Suzek Rolat. This is a special series called Corruption is Deadly. In our eighth episode of the series, Sarah Banna and I welcome back a previous guest to discuss policing, police reform, transformation, and abolition. Quentin Williams is an attorney, former FBI agent, former federal prosecutor, an entrepreneur, business strategist, author, motivational speaker, educator, and community advocate. Please listen to our conversation about where we are today with policing in the United States, as it is more important than ever to understand how and why corruption is not only costly, but deadly. Hey, everyone. It's Suzette. Welcome back to another episode of Corruption is Deadly, which is a special series of the Amplify, the Voice of the Third Space podcast. It's been a while since we've been here. Things have been happening. And uh, so we thought we would come back together today. As always, we have my co-host, Sarah Banna. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be reconnected again. It's been a while. And then we're really thrilled to have Quentin Williams back with us again. He joined us for a previous episode, if you'll recall. We talked about education, especially. Quentin is a former law enforcement official and has a long resume. Quentin, welcome back. Thank you for joining us again. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been, I think, more than two months since we had our conversation It was before the public murder execution of George Floyd on the street in Minneapolis, before all of the protests and demonstrations and righteous outrage regarding racial injustice and the police violence that we witness regularly in this country. And so, Quentin, we we wanted to have you back today and talk about what's been happening, what you think about this, given your law enforcement background, what your thoughts are about what's been happening. And then I guess we really need to get to some solutions. I don't think we're going to see this coming to an end anytime soon. We're going to see people in the streets. We're seeing more and more actions being planned. We're seeing city councils come together to contemplate defunding or uh, divesting and rethinking policing. It almost seems like we're at the beginning of this conversation in many ways, even though it's been going on for some time. But what are your thoughts? Since we last spoke, obviously a lot has happened. Sure. And I, I just looked it up. I think it was May 6th or 7th. So it was about yeah. you know a few weeks before the murder of George Floyd. This is like, unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. And I never thought that I would see this in my lifetime. I say that not as a glass half empty guy. I say that as a glass half full guy. I never thought I would see this kind of engagement by individuals who are not people of color, who are willing to take the lead and do something, but they just don't know what to do. So the fact that you said you want to talk about solutions, I'm really very pleased about that because the calls I got, and I got these calls in avalanche form, those calls were all about action and what can be done, what are the solutions, with the realization that what had to be done had to be done well, that silence was no longer acceptable, and that even if mistakes were made while executing these strategy solutions, whatever you want to call them, that that was okay if you had a genuine interest in doing what was right. So I had a lot of people ask me, all right, I, I, do I have to make this perfect? 
And I say, yeah, it has to be perfect. What you do has to be perfect. But the action doesn't have to be perfect. The genuineness does. So if, if you're going to make mistakes, people need to trust that what you're trying to do is genuine. And nobody has all the answers here. So there are going to be mistakes made. But this is so important because, as I said, in my generation, I never thought I'd see this kind of engagement from people who have been historically and traditionally uninvolved. This is our time right now. Yeah, I have to to say I never thought I would see this either, you know, and as someone who's relatively new even to paying attention to these issues, I'm just still kind of blown away by the way in which everyone's kind of coming together on these issues. But at the same time, I'm also blown away and troubled and disturbed by the backlash that's happening. Now, I, I suppose, and Quentin, I'm sure you can tell us how that that's not surprising, right? When you have watershed moments like this and when things are really heated up in, in the way that they are. But, you know, we've got people at their city councils for dozens of hours that they're now spending over several weeks talking about not just police reform, but defunding police and abolishing police forces and getting rid of the militarization of our streets and the way in which our black and brown communities have been harmed by the police. But then we've also got those people that are coming after that and are just not there, right, that are not in a place where they can talk about defunding or divesting or certainly not abolishing. It's And none of these words are perfect, um, but I think the sentiment is that, you know, what we're doing right now with our police forces is not working. This is different. This is unlike anything we've seen. And usually we see something, you know, the, uh, Walter Scott's killed and four or five weeks later, everybody's back to normal. There's no global outrage. Uh, and he's shot, you know, several times in the back while running away, nonviolent, you know. And and so this this was different. A lot of people say, why is why is this different? And we just had the perfect storm of a pandemic where people are locked in their houses. They have time on their hands. They have access to information through their their cell phones. And those cell phones are displaying to them eight minutes and 46 seconds of sheer terror with a man who is pleading for his life and the indifference in the face of the, the perpetrator. Uh, all of that with the three people who stand complicit watching it, the begging of a community to not kill one of their own. That, I think, is what was the the tipping point for, you know, in a long history of these unfair practices by some, not by most and not by all, but by some. And so that's why we are here because the history has come to a tipping point. And George Floyd, unfortunately, was the person who had to suffer. And I'm, I'm, I am absolutely committed to making sure he didn't, and not, neither did any of the others, suffer in vain. So I think we have masses of people who feel that way, and that's why globally this is now at another level of engagement. So I think what it, what is surprising to me, and I'll and I'll refer to myself as an outsider for once, as as an immigrant uh, to this country. I think what has been really surprising to me, Quentin, is actually the lack of response. You know, given the number of individuals that are killed by 
American law enforcement across this nation on a regular basis, given everything that we know about the history of policing and body cam footage one after another, particularly over the last few years with these brutal killings. What has been really surprising to me is the politeness and the lack of serious response from the American people um, in regards to what their government is doing to their communities. So I, I agree with you that I think a lot of things together this time, whether it was the horrific scenes um, and the pain of watching that video and maybe possibly COVID and people being out of work. But I think this has been building up and, and it's been something that's been evolving and developing for a long time. And I'm just surprised that it had not erupted before. Yeah, there was there was something about, I mean, again, from that kind of that white person's perspective, so when you you mentioned Walter Scott, you know, and seeing an unarmed black man running away from the police and being shot, you know, those are the, the typical images that we often see. This was something, although resulting from the exact same type of policing methods, was just, I think, in some ways, like like you said, a tipping point when you are seeing a restrained black man who is on the ground and is begging for his life just just to be able to breathe and is treated with such callousness to watch that and to be aware of this is how our police officers you know you said not some but not all but you know but nonetheless this is a systemic problem because the the guys that don't have their knees on his back or on his neck they're a part of the problem too and so you know it's like that is it's like just it, it raised a whole different level of consciousness, I guess, of what this is all about and what we're talking about when police use ridiculous excessive force, number one, but repeatedly against nonviolent offenders with black or brown skin. I, I have the great pleasure of working with a lot of law enforcement officers across the U.S. and the world, and they're not that. They are not that. However... I've had these conversations with them that if they are complicitous in any way, whether it's uh, a small, there's a small measure of complicitous behavior or a large measure of complicitous behavior, like those other three, they're the same thing. Any complicitous behavior. There's no room for silence. There's no room for it. And many folks were getting through the industry for years, decades, by not saying anything about the terrible behavior of a tiny few. And that that didn't necessarily play in their favor because that tiny few to the community was and is representative of the whole, always. Not just the whole of the agency, but the whole of the industry. And to some, the whole of society. Because law enforcement represents to many in communities across the world, authority, which represents government. And so when you speak of one law enforcement officer having his knee on the neck of George Floyd, what many see in that is they see authority having that stranglehold on communities and not just law enforcement as authority, but all of authority, that the system having a stranglehold on people. For many, that's what it represents. And so 
when people say, why is this such a big deal? Why is there a global movement now? Well, I put it in the context of the pandemic and everything that's going on, but folks saw the system in that perpetrator. They saw themselves in George Floyd. And because of that, you have a global movement. And, and I think that's so important, Quentin, because in a lot of the responses, particularly from our local law enforcement administrators and in the fraternal orders of police here across our state has been, why is it that you guys are demonstrating and quote unquote rioting in regards to something that happened in Minneapolis? Well, we didn't kill George Floyd. We're not doing that here. But the reality and the statistics here in our state places us in 2018 fourth in the nation for the number of Oklahomans killed per capita. Our criminal justice system up until a few months ago, Oklahoma incarcerated more human beings than anywhere else in the world. So when you are talking about people being able to relate to that systemic suffocation and the oppression and the injustices, that is what is driving people into the streets. The Oklahomans that I have met and come across over the last two months are not bored. They're not crazy, right? They, they do have better things to do, like go to work, take care of their families, go play ball, you know, play video games, whatever it is that they'd like to do. But the, the story of George Floyd was something that they could personally relate to. Here in Oklahoma, you are only a few individuals away from either knowing somebody who's been a victim of police brutality, whether it's in the form of getting a bullet shot in your back or in the back of your head or in the front. Uh, but police brutality in, in our state has gone beyond just getting shot by the bullet. People are being denied their life and liberty through different forms of police brutality, whether it's wrongful convictions, whether it's excessively charging individuals, whether it's the district attorney's office putting excessive bail on people to trap them into the prison industrial complex. Um, So these things have been happening and, and, and it is getting to a level that I think even white Americans, and maybe this is why we're having an awakening from white Americans, is that this has produced such a low quality of life and such division in our nation that the time for change is now, and it is in the interest of all Americans to bring that change now. Dr. King made these demands 50, 60 years ago, and we've, we've been lagging. So the time is now. And like you said, we better get it right this time around, because the next time around, um, I don't know that there's going to be much streets left <laughs> if we if we have to, quote unquote, riot one more time over this. Yeah, I, I think this is the revolution. I don't think there is a next time. I think this is the time we've been thinking about this revolution that was coming for the last 10 years. We I know we've been talking about my group has been talking about this revolution. I didn't think it was going to come for another five to 10 years, but I didn't plan on a pandemic and George Floyd intersecting. And that just accelerated everything. When Dallas happened and New York happened, when cops were being executed, I said, do you understand this is the beginning of the revolution? And people look at me. I, I just don't like to, I don't like for people to view what we say is chicken little kind of stuff. But really, you have a guy executing numerous police officers in Dallas. And around the same time, you have two separate instances of cops being executed on the street. This, these are indications of a revolution. People are willing to give their life for something they believe is bigger than them. And a lot of 
law enforcement officers would say, well, that's um, that's really a mental health issue. Those people weren't well. I'm saying it could have been mental health, but the mental health issue could have been caused by societal issues. And and people have gotten to the point where they're willing to give up their own life, in essence, for a movement. And that was, what, five years ago or whatever. And now here we are. And without a doubt, you have to acknowledge that this is a movement and this is a revolution. This well, cannot be denied anymore. Well, let's talk about what this revolution is going to look like, because, I mean, I've been digging into this a little bit. Obviously, police reform is nothing new, right? I mean, this has been going on for some time. Everything from encouraging more diversity among police forces, right? Trying to make sure that we have more racial integration into police forces, um, community forcing procedures, the establishment of body camps and having actual footage of what's happening when police are engaging uh, members of their community. Other measures like prohibited maneuvers, like prohibiting chokeholds, for example, right? There are several cities who've done this. So these kinds of reforms have been tried. They've been put in place. The data shows us that basically diversity in police forces doesn't really matter all that much until you get a pretty good number of Black police officers, right? Once you get to 35% or so, then you start to see some change or some impact on misconduct uh, among that police force. So there's that issue. Body cams, right? Are some, they're either not being used, they're turned off, they're not being released. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are standing in the way of body cameras. The chokehold thing, you know, may be prohibited, but it's still being used. What we do know, though, is that one thing that works, and that is accountability after a report of misconduct. All the data shows that cops who fuck it up do bad things. If they're held accountable, things get better. But what stands in the way of that? The fraternal order of police, police unions, and police contracts stand in the way of accountability procedures. So knowing all of that, Quentin, you know, what does this revolution look like? What, I mean, the revolution, is it to abolish and start over, throw out like Minneapolis is trying to do, like Camden, New Jersey did at one point in time, many years ago, right? Just said, we're starting over, we're starting from scratch, right? And we're going to re- establish our notion of what public safety and public security means and where our funds are going. And you mentioned mental health, for example, that we're going to divert funds from policing, militarized police forces to people who have mental health backgrounds, for example. So what is this thing going to look like, this revolution that we're now experiencing that's getting underway, like you said? I don't believe there's one look that will be templated for the whole industry. I think, you know, depending on the agency, there are some agencies that are run really well. And those police agencies will will have some modifications, but they won't necessarily have to deconstruct and rebuild. Then you'll have those at the other end of the spectrum who just, and they might be small agencies that will just have to completely deconstruct what they do and rebuild. Um, for the most part, like for for defunding, for example, uh, you know, defunding, people hear that word and then they think about, oh, breaking down, completely tearing apart law enforcement. It's not that. It's reallocation. It's just there are several ways to reallocate funds 
You can reallocate them by taking money away from a law enforcement agency and them to outside support, or you can reallocate them in reallocate internally. I'm one for defunding, but for defunding in a way where you are reallocating internally. The reason why I say that is because chiefs of police, once you start taking money away from them, you start to lose them. And they don't want to lose money because they they need more money. Actually, they're underfunded. But you take money away and you give it to that outside, then they're never going to get that money back. But there's there's something that's special about this time because a lot of agencies, law enforcement agencies, are down in the number of officers that they have. So some are down like 2%, but there are some that are down like 15%. These are numbers that will never come back in our lifetime. And if they come back, they're going to be the wrong people. So say you had a, a, hundred, a, a maximum 100 people sworn personnel in your agency, and you have 85 now. So you're trying to fill 15 positions and you're rushing to fill those positions. There's a good chance you're going to mess up because you're under the gun just to fill positions rather than getting the right people in the process of selecting and making and training and then making people accountable through discipline. You are selecting the wrong people with any one of those three things, selection, training and accountability, which is discipline. If you mess up any one of those, your agency is toast. You have to do all three of them right in order to be successful. If you select the wrong people, but you train them really well and you discipline them real well, who cares? They're the wrong people. And the same thing is true for the other two elements of that. So this revolution is going to reformat the way law enforcement is structured. And it's going to transform law enforcement. I don't believe in the word reformation here. Transformation is what we're going to see. The transformation of law enforcement as an industry. I firmly believe that law enforcement should be the supplement to a community's empowerment. So 75% of the work, law enforcement's work, should be done by the community. The other 25% should be done by law enforcement. Right now, law enforcement is called in on 100% of their calls, 90% of them are not criminal related. This stuff should be given to EMTs and social workers and mental health professionals. So when we talk about defunding, I'm talking about reallocating. Instead of having cops go to a circumstance where a mental health professional would have been effective, but a cop is not. Well, then let's send that mental health professional there. But we can send that mental health professional there who is an internal person for the police force. So this allows law enforcement and these experts to work hand in hand and allows the public to get what they need from the appropriate place, as opposed to a cop showing up for something that they're not well trained to do. Also, what happens organically is you start to see that communities become empowered by those experts. Those experts will put in place systems that empower the community so that the community is doing 75% of the work and law enforcement is doing 25%. Right now, it's just the opposite. Community is only doing 25% of the overseeing of themselves 
and law enforcement is doing 75%. And how's that working out? It's terrible. It's not the way it should be. So we can reduce the number of police officers, but increase the number of professionals and experts who work with police officers and at the same time shift, have a paradigm shift where we make it possible for communities who are empowered to do the work for themselves as opposed to having outside forces come in and do the work for them. This is what transformation looks like. This is what the revolution calls for. So the revolution might not be what people want to see. They don't want to see protests. They don't want to see all this stuff. But that is what's going to lead us to the transformation, which gets people to think about a creative way of doing things. And that creative way, in my estimation, is to see 75% of the work being done by communities, 25% being done by law enforcement, and having a reallocation of funding so that that can be best accomplished. If I could respond to some of that, Quentin, I I do want to agree with you in regards to reforming police departments and distinguishing between different law enforcement agencies. I know even here in the state of Oklahoma, 77 county conservative voted for Trump, very pro-police mentality. But we do have police agencies, for example, the city I live in, Midwest City, the Midwest City Police Department years ago decided to really and genuinely invest in the idea of community policing and foundationally change its approaches to policing, right? As a result of implementing such approaches, such transformative approaches, we haven't had a police-involved killing in, in this city since 2016. You go to the city next door, we just had a off-duty security, off-duty officer working as a security guard kill someone just the other night at at a Walmart, right? You go to the Oklahoma City, uh, which is just a few blocks down my street here, they are ranked second in the nation for the number of individuals they kill per cap for a city its size, right? Um, Now, the Oklahoma City Police Department will claim we've been doing community policing. I will say, particularly over the last year, they have been dragging their feet. They haven't genuinely been intentional about those reforms. As far as that transformation that could have actually avoided what you are calling a revolution, I I, I still want to think of it as an evolution. I come from revolutionary land, so I know revolutions are very bloody And I know revolutions don't always uh, result in the desired outcome of people. So I want to be kind of cautious of that from my perspective. But I do think those of us who've been invested in community policing and changing the culture of policing have been attempting to do this transformative work, but it, it has taken much longer, right? And like you said, you expected this to maybe happen within five to 10 years had we not been successful, right? Uh, We ran out of time. It took us too long to bring about the policy changes and cultural changes in a standardized way across the nation, right? So although my police department may be doing good in comparison to others, when you have a shooting next town, next door, your typical resident doesn't distinguish between the officer from this city and the other city, right? They see that as a injustice from all police professionals, right? So that's one aspect of it. Um, As far as the transformative issues that you were talking about, I I think it's foundational changes in the approaches that we 
you know, approach policing. And I agree with you. The majority of the things that police departments are responding to right now are not criminal. And because we have defunded most of the resources and programs um, and core government services that should be responding to those, and we've put all those burdens on the shoulder of police, what we have done in America is we have started criminalizing a very large number of our population. And in doing so, in the long term, we have depleted our communities and created a larger population of second and third class, you know, residents who, you know, are denied employment, denied voting rights and all sorts of issues after that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, police do investigate crimes. They are, you know, people who show up to a crime scene and try to collect evidence, that type of thing. But the majority of the profession of policing historically has been force, providing force in situations where force is necessary. So with that in mind, sending a police force to respond to a mental health crisis has never really been logical, rational, um, or constructive. So I think we are at a point where we have to use the science, the evidence, and the information and the experiences we've had as a nation to really reimagine in a a very creative way of how do we approach this. But it goes back to are those who are administrators and mayors uh, in positions of power willing to agree and be cooperative with those necessary changes? And if those changes are not implemented, then that is when you will have that revolution. And it may get bloody and a lot more destructive than what we've even experienced now. I mean, I agree with everything you said, but there are a couple of points I'd like to hammer home. My viewpoint, my perspective about revolution is that it's not just when people are cutting people's heads off with a guillotine, but it's it starts with the ask. So people are asking, you know, like some change here, this isn't right. And when that doesn't happen, then it starts with a demand. No, you you will do this. If you don't do this, then it ha- the take happens. So we're at the demand level now. The next step is the take. Which, we, which you, I think, would categorize as, as the actual revolution. But I consider the revolution starting from the ask. The ask, the demand, the take. And we are fortunate enough to not be in a take right now because the take is where it's bloody. We're at the demand level. We can still talk. We can figure this out. We can educate each other. Uh, all that can happen. Like what I, what I do to educate people is done at the ask and the demand level. Once it gets to take, people aren't looking to be educated. They're just taking it. And so we are at that point right now where we can have peace. We can have harmony. We can have connectedness. We can, uh, all the kumbaya stuff that I talk about works right now, but it will not work at the next phase. And I've been telling people this. They better start listening because people have been asking for centuries. Now they're demanding, and I don't know when it's going to happen. So I'm not going to be able to say, if you don't meet their demands in the next week, it's going to be take, because that might happen tomorrow. It might happen today. I don't know. And it's not going to happen necessarily as not every people in California and people in New York aren't talking about when are you going to take. No, it's just going to happen. And it might happen at a different time in Minneapolis than it happens in Oklahoma City. So while you have people who are just demanding, you better start doing. That's what the action is. Action while they're demanding, because if not, 
the action will come from one party. It'll be unilateral. It'll be taking. And that that's what coups are. You know, when the general walks in and says, Mr. President, we are taking you and you are going to prison. You are being uh, beheaded. When that happens in other countries, that's the take. That's the revolution that you just talked about, Sarah. That's the part of the revolution. Right now, and we are not there. And this is an armed country. And let us rem- remind ourselves that most other countries who have had bloody revolutions were not armed. This is a very yep. armed country, so it'll be worse than our any of our nightmares. Yep. And one last thing, Quentin, um, is that under Steve funding the police. Again, we can go back and forth on the language. I have historically been one of those individuals who have advocated for more funding for policing, while I've been also advocating for different approaches to policing, right? I need that money so I can get therapists embedded in police departments. I need that money so I can afford the body cameras or to demand that my police chief hires more trained and professional folks rather than the rookie off the road that's willing to take any type of a paycheck. Uh, But as far as the defunding police in the state of Oklahoma, we have had a series of budget cuts statewide that have impacted our core government services, including public safety, uh, year after year in order to give the big oil tycoons uh, bigger tax breaks. And we actually have police departments who have shut down in our state. I mean, police Mm -hmm. departments who were first defunded at the state level, then the municipal uh, city councils who are smaller, who decided, oh, we just can't afford to keep the police department operating. So I've got police departments who did shut down their buildings. They did fire all of their officers. Unfortunately, what has happened in rural Oklahoma is that you had a bunch of racist, gun-toting, militia wannabe folks who showed up to take on the volunteer positions. But in larger communities where there is access to education and professionals, right, that could be diverted kind of like what you were saying to professional experts that could respond as a community. I believe that the uh, so if you talk about doing away with police agencies, that, you know, six person police agency that's in a rural place, they really don't have funds to keep it going. And they know that the state or the county will step in and patrol that area. That that happens all over the place. In, in Connecticut, there are 80-something towns that do not have police agencies. The Connecticut State Police does the patrol, takes over that patrol. In Charleston, South Carolina, the Charleston County Sheriff's Office patrols those rural areas because there are no police forces in some of those places. So county and state steps in. That's fine. But when, when we're talking about defunding the larger which is what uh, people are talking about, defunding, but they're talking about defunding in the context of breaking down, like no doing away with. It's not practical. So how do we handle this thing in a way that's practical? Well, reallocate funds, keep the police agency in existence, but reallocate funds to experts. And also selection and training and discipline. We have to get back to fundamentals. If we select the wrong people, we're done. And that it, it only takes one. You select one wrong person, they do something, and it means that in the eyes of the public, the entire industry is flawed. So that's how important this is. So why don't we increase the odds of selecting the right people by lessening the number of people we have to hire and placing the responsibility on communities to watch over themselves. 
We don't need large police forces if the community is doing it it's themselves. So you have to educate the community how to rebuild themselves, how to build themselves in a certain way. That's the answer. That's the transformation. Reformation goes to, oh, how do we make what we have better through policy? No. You have to look at a complete paradigm shift. This has to be about transforming the way we think about law enforcement, that they're just a supplement. They're not the primary way of of taking care of communities. I want to push back on this a little bit because I have been studying and spending some time with those who do focus on the abolition side. I appreciate what both of you have said, and I completely see where you're going with this whole notion of reallocation. And I think maybe some of this is just semantics. But here's what bothers me. Policing in this country is based on a system of oppression and systemic structural racism that it's hard for me and and yet I'm not even obviously directly impacted by that. In fact, I've benefited from that throughout my life as a white person. And so like trying to understand how we transform a system as opposed to deconstructing and rebuilding a system, again, it's just a matter of what we call these things. But I find it very hard to believe that when we have a policing system, that its entire existence is due to slave patrolling and making sure that people of color are oppressed and punished and excessively so, you know, and poor people. It's people of color and poor people. So, you know what I mean, Quentin? It's just like, how do I, how do we come to terms with the fact that this is our history? Our police are built on that foundation. And yet, how do we go about reforming it, transforming it in your terms in a way that is going to work when it's so embedded? And quite frankly, when there's so much opposition even to reform, let alone defunding or transforming or reallocating. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And I think we're saying the same thing, though, because I think transformation and deconstruction are not mutually exclusive. I think in some ways you have to deconstruct in order to transform. Uh, it just depends. Like I said, I don't, I don't think there's a one size fits all because we have so many agencies and some are very progressive. They're really good, but some are awful. So those that are very good, you don't have to deconstruct necessarily. You just have to help to modify. But those who should not be in existence, you have to deconstruct and maybe rebuild them. Maybe you never rebuild them. Maybe you just get somebody else to take them over, like we were talking about with Connecticut State Police and Charleston County Sheriff's Office. So I, I think we are, there's a lot of overlap with what we're saying, that transformation has to be customized. It's not just a one-size-fits-all, here, this is what you do, and this will work for everybody. You got to look at it culture to culture village to village, city to city. And that is how we we approach this. This is not for those who are lazy. <laughs> you know, there, there are some people who just want to have, they want to have a template and then have that template work for everybody. And here's your answer. No, this is real work. Just think about the culture in Minneapolis. Is that the same culture that you have in Oklahoma City? Is it the same culture that I have in Charlotte, North Carolina? I mean, these are different places, different histories, 
So you have to deal with them as individual pieces of this complete transformation. And if we take that tack, then we're then we're committed. Then we've gotten to the point where we're saying, okay, this is going to take this work. Are you committed? Are you all in? I can tell you if if society says we're not all in, we're not ready yet, then the next step is what I was talking about. Well, then you lost your window of opportunity because people are going to take now. They've demanded. Now they're going to take. So we have this opportunity. Let us use it wisely. Let us do what is right. And for some, they don't want to do what's right. They only want to do what's beneficial. So we have to craft this to show them that this is beneficial. And I think that ask the man take that continuum is going to show them very clearly that this is beneficial for them because their nice little suburban lifestyles are going to be taken from them if they don't get on this train. Well, there's still so much to discuss. There there were things we didn't get to today, so we're going to do a follow-up soon. But at least this brings us back to this very important conversation with you, Quentin, with all of your background and expertise and knowledge in this area. And uh, so thank you again for joining us today. Like you said, this is something that there's kind of a window here, right? And And so we're wanting to make sure that we're speaking to people and having conversations with people right now so that we don't blow it and don't miss that window of opportunity where things will become even worse. So thank you for being here, Sarah, as always. Thank you for being here, my co-host. And we'll make it a third episode soon between the three of us. uh, And we'll get back to some of these issues. Thanks so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Amplify podcast, the voice of the third space. This episode was recorded via Google Hangout and produced by Jackie Sexton Braun in Central Oklahoma. Find more about us and the resources we mention in our podcast discussions online at OurNameIsAmplify.com. You can also follow and interact with us on Facebook and Instagram at OurNameIsAmplify and on Twitter at OurNameIsAmp. Thank you for listening and for joining us in this fight to do what is right.